<clears throat> sitting here now, I feel a lot of uh, gratitude and appreciation for all of you. We're here on the sixth day of the retreat, I think, <laughs> give or take a couple. <laughs> and um, I put a tremendous value in the practice you've been doing here. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here with you. And uh, it gives me a lot of hope that there are people who engage in this, at times, very difficult process of, uh, among other things, self-meeting themselves and seeing what's there and seeing what's unresolved or and really kind of going deep and meeting and, and even when it's uh, very, very difficult to do this and you're feeling perhaps that it's too difficult, you should know that I feel very grateful for you and appreciative that you're engaged in this process. And as I think are, are many other people, there are many people who are aware of these retreats and uh, it's very meaningful for them that there are people who take this length of time off from their life and uh, engage to really try to be here, fully here, and to meet themselves, to meet this life uh, in a way that's not distracted by all the many things that we can so easily get distracted by in life. So that's what's happening here. Long ago, then and there, there was a time, uh, it was relatively soon after the Buddha was awakened. He was meditating in a large park-like setting, a grove of trees, forest. And some uh, noble people, young noble men and noble women, husbands and wives mostly, uh, came to the park or the forest uh, to picnic and to frolic. And they say that uh, they came with all, bedecked with all their jewelry and fine garments, makeup, which back then uh, both men and women, noble men and women, both had makeup. Lots of colored paints in their faces. They must have made quite a sight. And one of them, one of the noblemen, uh, maybe he didn't have a wife or something, but he came with a, a, a um, courtesan. And um, after they picnicked and frolicked in some way or other, then uh, they all took a nap. And when they woke up, the courtesan was gone. And so was all their jewelry. So they were eager to get their jewelry back, so they started roaming around, maybe running around. In my image, they're running this way and that way throughout the woods there. And then in their pursuit, they uh, came across the Buddha sitting under a tree, meditating. And I, I love this contrast 
these noble people perhaps represent somehow the epitome of worldly life, caught up in worldly life, and caught up in things like jewelry and fine clothes and all the trappings of that kind of life. And in contrast to that, there's the Buddha, who clearly had renounced all that and had discovered how to be happy, how to feel, be deeply at peace and satisfied in this life, sitting with a robes and bowl and and um, under a tree, no home except the whole world was his home. So it's quite a contrast. And so the noble people asked the Buddha, have you seen a woman? And the Buddha replied, what would you rather find, a woman or yourself? And that got their attention. And so uh, they stopped in their tracks and sat down to hear what this monk had to say. And they received teachings from him and, and apparently it had a huge impact on them and some of them went off to become monastics. So what would you rather find? What are you, what are you pursuing? with your life, this precious life? What are you pursuing? What are you chasing after? And is that contrast between maybe the shallow pursuits of jewelry, frolicking in the parks or whatever, versus some deep abiding sense of peace and well-being underneath a tree? Is that relevant for you in some way? Is that symbolic something for you in your life? So who are you? Mary Grace talked some about that question yesterday. It's interesting to hear how the Buddha answered that question sometimes. Sometimes uh, when he described who he was, uh, he was sometimes willing to say who he was. And sometimes he said uh, he was a doctor. A spiritual doctor, I guess. Though he didn't use the word spiritual. A doctor of freedom, a doctor of the inner life, a doctor of suffering. The illness is suffering and cure comes relief, freedom from suffering. And I think this is quite significant because the Buddha didn't present himself as a mystic. He didn't present himself as a ritualist, but as a doctor. And then the Buddha was willing to tell, name other people. Who are they? Sometimes he would say. And uh, back then in ancient India, there was a caste of people, still today in India, of, of Brahmins, you know, the higher caste, the elite ca caste. And uh, you're, you're, traditionally you're born into that caste. And uh, you get all the privileges of that caste from being born into it. But the Buddha uh, redefined what it meant to be a Brahmin. 
And rather than defining it by how one was born, he defined it by the quality of a person's character, and one's behavior. Did one live ethically? Did one live nonviolently? Was one living with kindness? Was one compassionate? Was one free of their own greed, hate, and delusion? The people who had done that, they were the ones who were Brahman, regardless of what caste they were born into. So, I say these examples because the Buddha was willing at times to say, who? But I think that uh, more interesting for the Buddha in, the, in Buddhist practice is not who you are, but as Mary Grace said yesterday, what you are. To discover what you are is a much more profound, I think, entry into the life of freedom because who is kind of static. And what can we actually point to a process? So here we are, the Buddha, maybe sitting under your tree, sitting under the tree. And um, I also very much like this symbolic or the myth, the archetype of the Buddha story for how it, what it points to about being really here. You know the story of, um, some of you might know, probably many of you know the story of after many years of ascetic practice, the Buddha remembered um, and realizing that the asceticism wasn't going anywhere useful. Um, he remembered an event when he was six or seven, six I think. And um, it happens to some people when they start meditating, it happened to me. Uh, where they remember feelings of well-being that they had long forgotten from their childhood. And um, I was kind of, when I started meditating in my early 20s, I was surprised. Oh yeah, I remember that feeling. I had that 15 years ago. And it was kind of like reclaiming some possibility. But he remembered a time of uh, sitting under a tree again by himself as a six-year-old, sitting upright and feeling a sense of well-being and joy that was there for, without any reason. Just kind of rose up out of the, welled up from the inner sense of well-being. And this sense of uh, inner well-being, child, I call it like childlike openness that can arise, gave him a clue that this was a path forward to discover how to be free of suffering. The contrast again between suffering, both his own, that brought him to the path, and then the ascetic practice, which he spent six years doing. The contrast of that versus the path to freedom from suffering wasn't through more suffering, but rather was through some sense of childlike openness, the well-being, it's an open, childlike way of being, perhaps. So he said, I'm, this, 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 this kind of joy, this kind of well-being is worth pursuing. It's okay. And so then he sat down, and in the, in the myth, at least, he sat down for one night, his one night stand. And, um, and he sat there with that childlike openness. But he coupled it together with an adult-like stability. After all, he was a warrior, came from the warrior caste. And so like the statues we see like up here of the Buddha, 
he's not leaning forward, he's not leaning back, he's not collapsed, he's not too puffed up, he's just upright, present. I see the torso of some of these statues of the Buddha, and I think of the redwood trees out here. Tall, strong, they'll be here for hundreds of years after us, these same trees. Rooted in the ground. So there's this wonderful combination of, and uh, I call it childlike openness, a willingness to be open to whatever, and an adult stability that can stay stable and still whatever comes. And as we know in the story of the Buddha, uh, he did not have an easy time that night, at least initially. Uh, as the myth goes, he was besieged by Mara, all the temptations and doubts of his mind. And how to stay open when you're besieged by all these difficulties and how to stay stable and strong in the midst of it. I think it's one of the great tasks of this practice here. And when those noble people found the Buddha sitting under the tree, peacefully meditating, I'd like to believe that that peaceful presence that he had was the fruit of that wonderful combination of this great openness and this great stability joined together. Also in the statue of the Buddha, uh, like up there, uh, you see that his eyes are open. And we don't know back in whether he taught people to meditate with their eyes open or closed or what he did. But it said that symbolically, the open eyes of the Buddha meditating is the idea that the Buddha is not shutting out the world. Even though they say the Buddha renounced the world, he's not shutting it out. He stays open and connected to the world. And so it's like he's, he, all his senses are open. So again, this idea of openness and all-inclusiveness, to be all-inclusive in our presence and our awareness. It's one thing to be here, which we've emphasized this retreat so far. It's another thing to be here and have the awareness be inclusive. And one of the things I think we develop with mindfulness is an ability for awareness to be inclusive. And then for myself, um, um, I don't think that Buddhism is kind of an odd religion in many ways. Sometimes you wonder if it should be a religion at all or just some glorified form of therapy. But um, the, um, what I feel is most sacred in Buddhism is um, not something outside of you, not a shrine, not a statue, not a text, but rather what's most sacred is an awareness, your awareness, when it has nothing outside. There's nothing outside, nothing which is unacceptable for it, nothing which is shut out from it. In a sense, there's no outside. Everything's allowed to come. Everything's allowed to be there in your awareness. When awareness is all-inclusive, with no outside, I think that's sacred. I think that's pretty phenomenal. Because it's a, it's a phenomenal place of freedom, of joy, and of compassion in that all-inclusive place. And when I think of mindfulness, sometimes I think of, it's like a, um, 
light bulb. And initially the light bulb is pretty dirty. And perhaps uh, when we first start, it's like taking one little, cleaning one little dot, little hole in the dirt, in the, in the dust, so that one beam of light shines out. But we slowly learn how to clean more and more, expand that bulb, clean the bulb. So eventually it, be it becomes all, radiates in all directions and everything is included. And it's interesting to reflect, you know, what is not included in your attention? In what way are you divided? What way do you have walls in your attention? This is acceptable and this isn't. Or what way do you have preferences? Oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is, what I, this is the only thing that's worthwhile paying attention to. And there's all these different ways in which we kind of divide up the world so the awareness is selective or excludes things rather than includes. And um, so that's one of the things I wanted to talk about this evening is the idea of um, in, uh, noticing what is it that's not included in the awareness as you're, paying, as you're being mindful. Another, to use another, if I from, if you forgive me, I suppose, to use another analogy to confuse you all. Um, sometimes I think of, uh, you know, that there's mindfulness. It's like you're paying attention to everything's on a stage, but then there's a stage director that's off stage directing the show. And the, the task is to invite the stage director up on stage so you can see everybody. There's nobody off stage. Everything's on the stage. The whole world's a stage. And or some of the stage directors are behind the curtains. And like Toto, <laughs> they pulled, open, pulled the curtain on the Wizard of Oz. And usually when, we, when we, the stage director comes on stage and we pull the curtains, uh, he or she uh, doesn't seem as powerful as uh, when hidden behind that curtain. So to bring everything on stage. So what is it that's not included? What's not there? Um, so one of the very interesting things, I believe, is, um, is the attitude with which we practice, the way in which we're being mindful. Uh, sometimes when mindfulness is taught, we're taught to pay attention to things, like pay attention to the breath, pay attention to the body sensation, pay attention to feelings, pay attention to sounds. You know, pay attention to what's going on. And it, it's kind of like you're, you're shining the attention on something. And since the practice is about what you're shining it on, the way you shine, that's not the practice. The way in which you're mindful, that's not the practice. The practice is what you notice. But actually, how you are mindful, the attitude, the approach, the, the, uh, the way you kind of do it, is a very important part of the practice as well. There's no outside in this practice. So, for example, there can be striving, trying so hard. And I've practiced, uh, done meditation practice where uh, I, was, I wondered why I was getting a headache. Why is this headache about? Where's that coming from? Only after some time, sometimes a while, because I can be slow, <laughs> Uh, to notice, oh, it's because 
I'm trying so hard to be mindful. I'm just kind of bearing down and everything. If I had if I had included how I was practicing, the attitude or the approach of practice itself, and not just kept looking at the breath or looking at my feet, kind of, then um, I could have let loose, let let go, or relaxed earlier. There can be um, in the how we practice, there can be expectation. Um, you know, if I if I do this, then I'll give I'll I'll be rewarded. I've known people who've sat this retreat. I knew one person sat this retreat many times, who uh, turned out had a kind of magical thinking that was infused and kind of intermixed with her, her meditation practice. She thought that if she just sat long enough on the cushion, she would be rewarded. It's just a matter of putting in your time and something would happen. That's magic thinking. Just sitting on the cushion by itself is not going to do anything. As Ajahn Sumedho says, if that was the, uh, if sitting was where it was at, chickens would be enlightened. <laughs> there has to be some also some some use of mindfulness and some clarity of seeing what is this, being really connected here. So sometimes you know it can be an attitude of magical thinking that's involved. There can be an attitude of. I'm going to be mindful because there's something really special I'm supposed to see. Something that's not happening now. Because this can't be good enough. This experience here, you know, my knee hurts, I have a headache, they serve too many beans for dinner, or whatever. And uh, I used to be so bloated in Asia. Oh, <laughs> it was quite something. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I became kind of an expert on uh, bloated meditation. <laughs> Intricate study of all the sensations of bloated. And it's much more interesting to go in there and study all the intricate sensations of bloated than it is there to sit there and feel sorry for oneself. Poor me. And, like one of, the, one of the ways that I sat with bloated stomach was I would sit there and say, if only I wasn't bloated, then I could meditate. <laughs> um, but I learned that you can meditate just fine with a bloated stomach. It just means that the meditation is unpleasant. <laughs> so you have an expectation. Is that part of the background? attitude of meditation, oh, it's always supposed to be pleasant. If I'm successful, if I do it right, it'll just be so pleasant. I'll just be kind of sitting in some kind of wonderful bliss, and spacious, and yes, I'll have that play. Gil talks about this all-expansive, all-inclusive awareness. Yes, that'll be so great. All-inclusive awareness when you're bloated <laughs> means you're doing bloated meditation. <laughs> And um, I think it saved me for all the, from all the parasites. <laughs> because all my friends in Burma got parasites, but I didn't get any. Nothing could survive in there. So.
So there can, so there can be attitude of, <coughs> of <coughs> avoidance, pushing things away. This shouldn't be. And I've done a lot of meditations where I sat in order <coughs> to have the pain go away. And, uh, and like most meditators, sooner or later, have some capacity to use concentration to overcome a certain degree of pain. And so there was a while that I would, okay, I'm feeling that pain, okay, I just got concentrated. Zero in on the breath. Okay, that feels so good. Did it. <laughs> For a while. But sooner or later it would catch up to me. And then I had to learn to sit with the pain, as opposed to running away from it. I've known people, uh, and I've had this too, a little bit, but I've known people for whom um, joy and inner beauty was somehow seen as not really to the point. Oh, if I feel a lot of joy, or feel a lot of love, or feel a lot of, you know, beautiful feelings, well, that's sentimental, or that's, you know, after all, I'm a Zen student, so, you know, just, <clears throat> just right to the truth. None of this joy thing, please. And, uh, or there are certain people who have, uh, because of their religious background, actually have an attitude that joy or physical pleasure in meditation is kind of a sin. And so I've had the wonderful privilege of telling some people that it was okay to, it was okay, it was okay to experience joy in meditation because they had this kind of feelings, attitudes, no, 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 I can't do that. So mixed in with how we meditate, how we use our mindfulness, there can be a lot of beliefs, a lot of expectations, and, and more than just beliefs and expectations, there can be um, the kind of, not just, more than attitude, there can be a, a um, um, there can be tightening up, there can be pushing, there could be pulling back, there could be hesitation, resistance. There's a lot of things that can be mixed in there. And if we're blinded by what we're paying attention to, like the breath, we might not notice the quality of how the, what the attention is like that's doing looking. So it's useful from time to time to step back and look at the quality of the mindfulness itself. It, what, what is mixed in with it? What else is going on there? I found this. I found this very, very helpful and very protective. Protects me from myself. Protects me from kind of tying myself in knots. And then there's a um, wonderful trap of um, thinking. Uh, I've sat, I've meditated, some, and I sometimes have my mind very, very quiet. And I've had the thought, I'm not thinking. <laughs> and I believe the thought. Because somehow there can be very, very subtle thinking going on that can almost seem invisible. Seem like that kind of, that is no longer discursive thinking. I've stopped all this, you know, I've stopped thinking about my high school prom and you know, and whatever, which I didn't go to. <laughs> but um, the, um, to all that discursive thinking, having conversations with people has stopped, 
but so but actually then we don't notice actually there's a whole layer of very very subtle thinking I've known people who, for whom the teacher said, who said to the teacher, you know, I'm not thinking anything. And the teacher would say, oh, go back and look more closely. And they come back and say, oh, in fact, yes, I realize now. It's a very, very subtle layer of thinking. And subtle doesn't mean it's not impactful. It can still kind of be involved in all kinds of machinations and judgments and whatever. There's also the trap of thinking, where we're thinking about something so we're thinking about the breath, and so we think that we're mindful because our thinking is about the breath. But thinking about something is not the thing. And in fact, I think some people spend an inordinate amount of time in a, in a world of aboutness. If you're thinking about high school, about work next week, about a relationship, about the food, about your interview you're going to have, about, you know, something which is not happening here. If you're living in that world, it's the world of aboutness. And I would say that an about world is not a very satisfying world to live in. But we can also have that aboutness about what's happening here and now. And confuse thinking about what's going on with real connectedness, real seeing, being present, feeling, sensing what's happening here. And that thinking about can take the form of very subtle commentary. Judging, evaluating, being for or against. Mindfulness is meant to be very simple. It's, so, it's almost uh, so simple, it's, we overlook how simple it is. It's just a very simple noticing what's here, being present. And what we're aware of, letting it be what it is. And be content that we're just trying to see it more clearly. Tuning into it, see it better, see it more fully. It doesn't have to be any different. Another trap that I've fallen into is uh, because sometimes I want to sit until whatever I don't like goes away, is... Um, I'm sitting there waiting, for, waiting to watch it go away, as if somehow I'm going to see it go away. And, um, and then I overcame that after, I don't know how many hundreds of times. Um, I would come back to the next sitting, or some sitting later, and I said, where is it? <laughs> I didn't see it go away. <laughs> it just, it just, no, it's, no, it's gone. And uh, so I saw, you know, from, you know, because of my strong kind of habit of you know, wanting things to go away, um, you know, and w- waiting, watching, waiting. Oh, oh, oh is it going to do it now? Is it going to do it now? <laughs> just, just, you know, just sit back and be present. So one of the, uh, I think one of the most uh, significant and deeply rooted areas that we sometimes exclude from attention I say there's two. I like to offer two. One, one sometimes is um, our suffering. Some of you feel like you've suffered enough, but there's some. There's a way in which sometimes uh, we don't pay enough attention to the ways in which we are feeling dukkha, we're feeling unsatisfactoriness of the experience, or feeling uh, detention, or 
of the situation, the, the suffering of the situation. And it, there's something very profoundly maturing and penetrating and opening to really notice in the, in the moment what part of your experience is uncomfortable. Because then it's possible to kind of see through that, to see where's, where's the clinging, where's the attachment that's helping to create that dukkha. But if we overlook the suffering, then we also overlook the possibility of finding the freedom from the, the attachment that might be underlying it. So there's a, there's a wise way of learning how to incorporate, incorporate uh, attention to the Four Noble Truths as part of the practice. And then, uh, oddly enough, perhaps one of the more significant places for doing this is when those, those rare times, perhaps, <coughs> when meditation is very, very concentrated, very deep, and there's seemingly a lot of peace or a lot of joy or bliss. It seems like there's no suffering here, no dukkha here. But in those situations, to look, where is, the, is there any here? Because that actually might be the, the, uh, the, 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 the door to let the path go further not lingering with the joy or lingering with the peace, but rather seeing in that, is there anything which feels unsatisfactory? So then the other uh, significant, um, uh, deeply rooted issue that sometimes is overlooked is our sense of self, the selfing that we have. And this is where we come to this issue of what am I as opposed to who am I. Rather than asking the question as if it has a logical, rational answer, you can have a sentence that describes what you are, who you are. What we do in mindfulness practice is we can turn the attention inward to feel and sense what that sense of self feels like. What's the sense of self out of which our beliefs, our attitudes, our reactions seem to flow? As we sit, in, and it's part of the advantage of sitting quietly and being calm, is sometimes it's possible to not have so many distractions from really sensing and feeling deep inside what, what, that, what the kernel or this very sense of self, self-identity, actually feels like. Sometimes it's very closely connected to something emotional. Some, occasionally it's connected to some kind of suffering. Sometimes it's connected to something else, something beautiful. But what's, that, what's it like? What's it feel like there? It's like if you sit and meditate on thinking, and instead of staying with noting thinking, thinking, you turn your attention around and notice the emotional ground out of which the thoughts come. You feel that emotional ground. And often, I think, when there's a lot of repetitive thoughts, um, they're not, that's, the thoughts are not really the issue. If you keep letting go of them and they keep coming back, something deeper is needed than just letting go of thoughts. And what we can do is we turn around and feel what's the uh, uh, emotional uh, mood or atmosphere or ground or factory that seems to be producing these thoughts. So like as I like to say often, 
uh, people who plan a lot, there could be fear or anxiety. And that's the fear and anxiety is what needs attention. So in terms of selfing, uh, people spend a lot of time thinking about themselves. And uh, I suspect some of you have been doing that here this week. And I find it quite remarkable when I look at my own mind uh, how many of my thoughts are self-referential. And, uh, but even most amazing is um, I seem to be always interested. <laughs> and I've, I'm sure that if I told you about myself as much as I tell myself about myself, <laughs> you would get bored really quickly. <laughs> You'd wonder about my sanity. So what, what is the attraction? What's the glue? What's the, the gravitational pull to these thoughts, these ideas of self? I'm terrible, oh poor me, I'm the best, I'm the verge of Buddhahood. <laughs> this, you know, or you know, I need, I deserve better, or I'm unworthy, or, or um, you know, it's all these, all these, you know, or I need to come up with a better answer. I need to protect myself. I need to kind of show, you know, present myself a certain kind of way to people. I hope they don't see me that way. I hope they don't think of me that way. Remember at the end of the three-month retreat, I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but sitting through, there was a time for sharing. Everyone, all the retreatants could talk. And this guy said, um, oh, I want to just explain to you that um, I, I have um, three sets of um, black sweat clothes. <laughs> <laughs> So I wasn't wearing the same sweat clothes the whole three months. <laughs> As if that's important, different, important news for everyone to know. So you know how people, how we want, we want people to see us a certain way or not see us a certain way. So those kinds of those kind of selfing thoughts, do they arise out of something? And the suggestion is they don't arise out of nothing. And I would suggest a very interesting place to turn is turn back and feel where are they, the feeling, the emotional base out of which they come. Or some place in the body that may be churning or, or feels imbalanced or feels off or feels strong or feels something. And then to turn the attention and just hold that in awareness without judgment. And I think what, I, I think of mindfulness because it's so all-inclusive, so allowing, to be infinitely forgiving. You can be the way you are. It's okay. But then to hold it in awareness, and then what happens when you hold in awareness and attention? The deeper, deep kind of underlying kernels, the deep underlying structure, the deep underlying emotional feeling tone or base deep underlying kind of very shy perhaps sense of who you are as opposed to stay with the world of aboutness as opposed to staying thinking about it and wondering about it and moving it around in the world of thoughts but be really quiet as quiet as you can with your thoughts and go down and feel and feel and feel and hold it in awareness there is so much unconsciousness among people around 
who they think they are and how they hold themselves and their self-preoccupation. It's one of the great addictions, how much people are addicted to themselves. And to turn around and, and go behind that, to pull the curtain on it, and go deep inside and really just feel, sense, with care, with compassion, with love. And just see what happens when you hold it there. What I'm trying to kind of point to this evening is the idea of an all-inclusive awareness that with time learns to include everything in awareness. So, it, so the mind doesn't necessarily get stuck anywhere. But rather the mind stays and just stays seeing, seeing, this is what's happening, willing to see everything. And when the mind is willing to just be present for whatever it is and includes everything, then it has a, a chance for it to be um, joined by equanimity, where there's a kind of can be a tremendous equanimity, or allowance, or non-conflict, non-reactivity, to whatever arises: suffering, joy, self, not self, emptiness, fullness impermanence, permanence, whatever might be there, just, just know it with evenness, with balance. It's okay. Everything's okay. In the sense that everything's okay as we stay mindful of it. No matter what it is, can allow us, can allow us, not us, but can allow the body to drop away can allow the mind to let go of itself. We're not, Buddhist, Buddhist practice is not here to make a better you. It's not a self-help program in the kind of way that the stereotypic idea of self-help books and all that. It's here to discover this tremendous childlike openness, adult-like stability of a Buddha, where you'll feel safe, equanimous enough to let things be completely themselves, let things completely be as they are. And when things are completely allowed to be themselves with this equanimity, and it's okay for all of it to fall away. And that falling away will show you how profound the possibility of freedom can be. Freedom from suffering, freedom from self, freedom from clinging. It all unfolds, all in its own way, in a mindfulness that's simple, 
here for this that includes everything, including the very attitude <coughs> of striving and pushing and expecting and demanding, and waiting, they get in the way. Here. Here we are. This uh, day of the retreat is a good day, a good evening, that if you're not tired, perhaps to sit up later. Take advantage of this wonderful opportunity to sit here and be present for what is. Or if you're tired, please go to sleep. But if you wake up early, perhaps this is the night Good night to wake up early and come in here and sit. Perhaps you're ready after these days of sitting here and being here. Perhaps you're ready to extend, expand, stretch your practice a little bit more than it has been so far. So you can entrust yourself to the practice of mindfulness. One mind, mo one mind moment after another. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.